I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm your host, Brady Huggett. The guest today is Daphne Zohar, the founder and CEO of PureTech Ventures, which is not your typical um, VC. You know, most VCs listen to company pitches and then decide which ones that they're going to invest in. PureTech looks at problems and then builds companies aimed at solving those problems. Daphne founded it uh, more than a decade ago, I I think. So she was in New York on business, and I I managed to convince her to come into the studios. Uh, We talked about her background, her education. Uh, She started her first company when she was still in high school, and she sold it. We talked about the convergence of health and technology. We talked about the $55 million round um, of funding that PureTech raised. I think it was announced in October, and what that will allow PureTech to do uh, going forward. So all that and more. It was a good conversation. I'm glad she came in. Yeah, that's it. I will talk again on the other side, but now here's your First Rounders podcast with Daphne Zohar. I was doing some research and looking some some things up. Okay. Um, usually for people who are, are VCs, they've done it one way or, or a couple of ways. One is they were a researcher, they were a scientist, they spun something out, they founded a company, maybe they founded another one, maybe they founded another one, and then they've accrued enough business knowledge to understand what it takes to build companies, and then they went to work for VC. Mm-hmm. And you know, you've done this sort of almost the opposite way. You went for the business first. Um, can you take me through what that was like? Mm-hmm. Was business always something that you were interested in? Absolutely. So I started my first company when I was in high school, and I always was really drawn to and fascinated by the concept of creating something in the way that you do when you start a company. And I think that that, um, being an entrepreneur, a typical entrepreneur, um, my experience was always I'd get excited about an idea and I'd jump in to do, you know, to get something off the ground or to make it work uh, and really didn't have the – didn't do what VC does, which is really look back and be a critic. And and, um, I think that having done that several times, having started several companies – became interested in this sort of interplay between being an entrepreneur and then but then also maybe doing it in a way that's more methodical and more systematic. And so that was really uh, in many ways the birth of pure tech is the the concept of being almost institutional in the approach of looking at many different ideas um, looking at a landscape of technologies and having uh, great people involved, a bunch of different people involved, being very critical, but then balancing that with actually doing, which I think is different from uh, a lot of the approaches that are out there, which which tend to be more uh, critiquing mm-hmm. different concepts that come up. And so, when did when was found, uh, Pure Tech founded? Uh, officially, in two thousand and four. But you, you said the first company that you founded, or the business that you started, you were in high school. Yes. Um, what What was that? So, um, a couple of different companies. I mean, I guess a whole bunch of things that that I was interested in. But one of them was uh, a company um, selling watches. So it wasn't really very uh, innovative. Uh, but selling watches, importing and selling watches, distributing watches, and uh, built that up. You know, sort of on my own, and then sold it. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Where, where were the watches coming from? <laughs> they were coming from the Soviet Union, so that was. Uh, but how did you, as a, as a high school kid, how did you find the watches? How did you get them brought over? I had some cousins who were in the watch industry, and huh. I, you know, actually they were here in New York, and I came here, I think, on vacation with my family, and then saw what they were doing and thought it was interesting, 
and jumped into that. So, I mean, that was one example. Another example uh, was I was involved in an entrepreneurship program in Israel that was founded by Steph Wertheimer, who who founded Iskar, which Mm -hmm. was acquired by Warren Buffett. Um, And his idea was to create companies in Israel that would help the Israeli economy and um, to invest in people who had entrepreneurial personality types. And I went there and I was uh, involved in co-founding an olive oil company. So that's another, you know, these are examples of sort of eclectic uh, ideas that don't necessarily relate directly to what we're doing today Mm -hmm. in biotech. Uh, another company I was involved with uh, was developing veterinary products for uh, horses. So you know, there was interaction with uh, veterinarians, uh, but it really wasn't, you know, a biotech product or anything like that. Sure. My first real interaction with with biotech and with the sort of uh, healthcare industry uh, was through um, sort of networking with scientists and understanding, you know, looking at different ideas that they had and sort of jumping in and, and wanting to get involved and realizing that uh, really in order to select the best ideas and to, to know which ones I should move forward with, uh, a more systematic approach would be uh, helpful. But back to, the, back to the watches. Sorry, because <laughs> this is really interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you had Russian family? No, no, not really. You just had some sort of ties. There were some connections, yes, to... Um, and and so you saw the watches, and I mean, you thought process, <laughs> well, I can I can bring them in, I can probably do some sort of markup and sell them in my local, I don't know, to kids or, or no, to stores? to stores. Oh, geez. Yeah, so like wholesale and um, created a catalog and you know, did things That's like... a serious thing. Yeah, it so was you, somewhat serious. Were you yeah. going around to, to, I don't know, Macy's and saying we want to bring these watches in? Are you interested? Yeah, mostly to smaller stores, to smaller retailers, and then, um, you know... And so how long did that go on? Probably about a year. And then someone else, someone else bought it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, from an early age, you were, you were into business. Yes. Where did you grow up? I, uh, I was born in Israel. And I spent part of my um, childhood in the Boston area, uh-huh. and then I moved back to Israel after I went to Northeastern. Um, I studied entrepreneurship and new venture creation at Northeastern, and actually was drawn to that because it was one of the few programs that had the combination of um, starting companies uh, and learning about starting companies, but then also the co-op program. So the idea that I could actually start a company while I was in school mm-hmm. um, was very appealing to me. And then after that, I went to this entrepreneurship sort of incubator in Israel um, that I mentioned before in Tefin, and uh, founded. I also found another company out of there, which was uh, um, I developed a patent for packaging uh, a consumer goods product, and I would license that patent to a company here in the U.S. And that was actually one of my first um, sort of interactions with you know taking you know, developing patents, licensing technology. I actually then moved to Israel and it started. I was involved in after starting the the developing that pa- um, the consumer goods packaging uh-huh. product. I was involved in forming this olive oil company in Israel called Zeta. I was a co-founder there, and uh, we built that company to be about fifty percent of the olive oil market uh, in Israel. And then we sold it to a public company there. Is it still? China. Yeah, it's still there. It's in Nazareth, and uh, it's I think one of the major olive oil producers and marketers in Israel. And that was part of um, like a, a business competition, no? Um, I actually think the the business competition, the one that, that we submitted to the business competition was the, the veterinary product oh, for horses. Oh. Okay. So. But that also got off the ground. Yes, that also got off the ground. That was less successful. It was, a, it was like a, a sneaker. Um, that uh, the idea behind it was that it would create, um, it would enable the you know more blood flow circulation in the hoofs because it was moving together with the hoof mechanism. So the idea was it would prevent laminitis and navicular disease, and it would be helpful also for sport horses. And I got into that because one of my uh, family members is a, a show jumper, oh. a Grand Prix show jumper, and we met some horseshoers that were using this, and they thought it was really cool. I think you came, um, correct me where I'm wrong, which is okay. probably for most of this, but then you came back to Boston at some point um, and started to think about the life sciences. Your father was a researcher? Yes, yeah, so he was a researcher. He is a researcher, and he's also an entrepreneur. Uh, and he he had was interacting with scientists, and he introduced me to a couple of scientists, and I, I, I was intrigued by uh, some of their work. And one of them was uh, actually Mikhail Papisov at, at MGH, who uh, we ended up co-founding Mersana with. Uh, Mersana is a, a company that's developing a um, delivery technology, and it's backed by NEA and uh, a bunch of other. And they've done multiple uh, really big deals. 
So that was actually the first company. And we actually formed that before we formed PureTech. But that was almost like the impetus for forming PureTech is thinking about uh, the process of working with scientists and how do you, you know, systematically look at um, ideas and, and select through the best ones. I have to say that the original concept of PureTech was we're going to help scientists start companies. But mm-hmm. the, the concept of is, has evolved uh, such that what we're doing is we're actually thinking about a space or an, you know, either a therapeutic area or an emerging science space, we're making a wish list of who are the best people researching in that space. And then we're also um, bringing in people who have never thought about that particular you know, emerging technology area or that particular therapeutic area. And all of those people together get in a room with our team mm-hmm. And we look at 100 ideas um, that come up through this process and um, and really sort of start a company before we even have selected a technology. Where do those ideas come from? Yes. Yeah, so what we'll do is we'll bring together people that are leading thinkers in a particular field. And then we'll also bring together uh, people who have never thought about the problem. And we'll spend a lot of time trying to understand what people have done before to solve the problem, whether it be obesity or oral delivery of biologics or Alzheimer's disease. And mm-hmm. we'll look at where people have run into issues. So what kinds of approaches have been tried before? What are the issues? And then we'll try to come up with a, um, a subset of, um, you know, proposed ideas. So we'd, we'd love to be able to do, you know, X. And then we'll say, okay, well, who are the interesting um, scientists that might be working on approaches that are in that realm? Some cases, and in many cases, there's nobody who's actually Nobody, one um, scientist that actually has a solution. So we might say, okay, let's reach out to the following three scientists and see if we can work together with them. Uh, the people in the room are often uh, the ones that are reviewing grants, um, that are you know reviewing papers, that and have a very good network, and their former postdocs are out there. So we'll definitely be aware of everything that's going on, sort of in the the field. But then we try to think a little bit outside the box. From all, from all these angles, from the research, yeah. regulatory, you know, what's going on at the FDA, all that is covered before you actually put this team together. Yes. Well, yeah. we do a lot of research up front before. And then this, you know, I'm, I'm making it sound like it's one meeting, but it's right. multiple interactions with this team of people that we put together. And so the, the main difference is, well, one of the differences, um, whereas people go to VCs and say, we'd like to start a company, will you fund us? PureTech is actually going out to people and saying, we want you to come work with us. We're going to start a company in this area. Exactly. And there are some venture funds that will do venture creation. I think the difference is that what we're doing is primarily, we see ourselves as an institutional entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so while we have funding to put into these companies, it's really uh, what we're doing is primarily founding the company. So we see ourselves really as a founder. And we're often co-inventors. Because you have people in-house who are scientists as well. Yes, yes. And we're, you know, in this process, ideas come up from our team as well. Back to um, your father. There's two things I want to touch on here. So when you were growing up, he was a researcher. Did he um, sort of suggest to you that life sciences might be a a good place to have a career? No, not really. I mean, he really was just supportive of whatever was interesting to me. And I had, you know, all these wacky um, business ideas and things I wanted to pursue. Which you were doing well at at a young age. So. Yeah, for the relative to the age and, yeah. and you know, um, the, the specific industries that they were in, I think that um, he, he was very supportive of what I was doing as opposed to telling me I should be doing something else. But I would say that he's he also uh, has started a number of companies himself. So that was a good example for me. Ah, so you saw that? Yes. He started those before you were. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, and then I read someplace that um, as you started to think about life sciences for company creation, that you went to Bob Langer and sort of picked his brain? Yeah, so actually um, when I was saying I really would like to create this this company that is an institutional founder of companies, the name that kept coming up was Bob Langer. Everybody yeah. said, you know, Bob is the guy. He's done exactly what you're talking about as an individual. So and when we were thinking, first thinking about pure tech, we were saying, okay, well, how do we create almost a, you know, a, a company that if you could invest in Bob Langer, if you could, you know, sort of be part of that process, um, that was really the first um, thought process. And so Bob agreed to co-found PureTech. Um, and then another key element, I think, for our model was uh, people like John Zabriskie, uh, who was the, the CEO of Pharmacy and Upjohn, and, and Ben Shapiro, um, who was an executive vice president at Merck. And, and, and Ben and John brought this sort of pharma mentality of, okay, um, I won't be convinced until you show me you know, the following three things. And the idea really that evolved was let's think big. 
let's try to solve big problems, and then let's also figure out what we need to do in order to convince the world that these uh, technologies or approaches are viable. And then, but instead of waiting like the pharma companies would or like many VCs would, let's do those experiments ourselves. Mm. So that's that's sort of how the, the model evolved is to be very entrepreneurial, but but to be aware of what we need in order to, to um, pass the bar. What types of experiments are you running at PureTech? I mean, you're doing preclinical stuff. Do you ever do anything in the clinic itself? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, five uh, of our companies are already past clinical uh, testing. And so it's, it, you know, the... We started from an early idea mm-hmm. and took them all the way through um, multiple clinical studies. So we're a- absolutely doing that. In some cases, uh, in many cases, the first sort of uh, experiments um, the f- that we think about doing are are preclinical. Um, and, you know, then as something progresses and it, it actually proves out, you know, then it's great. It gets, you know published in places like Nature and mm-hmm. Science, and uh, it gets validation, and then we move to the next stage. In some cases, we'll do the experiment, and it won't work, and we'll just, you know, we won't form a company. We might just say, okay, right. well, that initiative, um, you know, didn't pan out. So, and when you form these companies, you just mentioned the next step. What is that next step? Do you form, um, you know, you bring other VCs in and do a, an A round? Are you looking to license those things out? Yeah, we've done all different types of things. So we've we've brought in VCs and done A, B, C rounds with VCs. Very, um, and, and and that is sort of the path when we think that there's going to be a lot of money needed to get to the key, you know, inflection. Right. Um, we also have done strategic partnerships directly with um, with you know with with pharma companies. Uh, we do a lot of grant funding, and um, we we have traditionally done really only the seed funding ourselves uh, and then brought in outside funding and you know several hundred million of outside funding into these companies. So um, we've traditionally really only done the seed funding ourselves and gotten the companies off the ground. So thinking of ourselves as an entrepreneur that might have a little bit of seed money, uh, angel money to get something off the ground uh, and then brought in external funding. But uh, we've just uh, recently closed a um, $55 million round, um, which is is primarily focused on enabling us to make larger investments into our companies and also um, and really sort of take them uh, further on our own. So that's sort of a $55 million fund that you are now going to put into these companies you're creating. Yes. So you said, you know, you had some seed money for, for many of these. Yes. And you brought the other VCs in. You did not participate in those A rounds or Bs, but you would now, yes. it sounds like. Huh. Yes. And in, and in the past, we um, we didn't participate in those rounds, but we were able to maintain a you know significant ownership um, in most cases, because uh, we start off as the, the primary founder, so we'll right. own like 100 percent initially, and um, then the other part of it, I guess, is that we, since we're an inventor, we will also have royalties. Right. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about your education too. Yeah. Um, these entrepreneurship courses that you've taken, there's we're seeing a lot more of those pop up specifically for biotech. You know, for these researchers to sort of get up on the science and move over. Was it helpful for you? Do you think it's helpful for them? Is it a good use of a, um, of a student's money? I don't know. Yeah, I definitely feel like having – even going through the process of, okay, if you – let's come up with an idea. Let's think about opportunity analysis. Let's create a business plan. Uh, and then you may in some cases even pitch the business plan in some sort of competition and get some funding, seed funding to get off the ground. That's a very useful process. I think that um, it's more useful if, if somebody is actually thinking about a real idea. And it probably becomes more relevant in today's uh, environment where somebody can start a company with a small amount of money, mm-hmm. you know, sort of an app or um, – you know, it's not so much these traditional businesses that might take a lot more money to get off the ground. So I, I feel like there's value there, but I think that there's more value um, later in actually experiencing it. And in fact, I think a lot of the we, we did a part, we did a, um, a little collaboration with the, the Kaufman Foundation uh, a couple of years ago because what we were thinking was that um, it would be helpful to think to, to bring in people uh, that were really promising and almost educate them real time. It, on how to start a company because that's, you know, actually if you think about every team member that is in PureTech, uh, including par- some of the partners, started off right after their, you know, postdocs mm-hmm. and came in with, with maybe a little bit of business background but really learned hands-on how to start companies. So I think that it's a combination is helpful. M- meaning you're saying if somebody has an idea that they certainly know they want to, not not sort of like maybe what I'll do is is start a company one day, I just want to get some education, but they actually know what they want to do. 
they probably have the idea, then those courses are really beneficial. No, I actually feel like the courses are beneficial. Okay, from a networking perspective, you might meet somebody who has an idea, and then the two of you will start a company. I guess what I was saying was that if somebody doesn't have anything that they're really interested in, they sort of say, oh, I'm going to make widgets, and they're not really interested in that process, Mm. um, and they're just doing it to sort of get their grade, they're not going to learn a lot from that. But if they actually, in this process, um, come up with an idea that they feel like they might want to pursue on their own, then it's a lot more valuable. Do you still do things that are outside of life sciences, still form companies, some well, IT? So Pure Tech, we're very much um, focused on health. And you know, initially, that was really traditional biotech. But now um, we have been getting more and more excited about the convergence of um, health with other disciplines. And I, I'd say not even now, in the last few years. Um, so we're very interested in, in the convergence of health and technology, health and nutrition. And so um, the kinds of approaches that we're taking are, taking are very, um, they're very much coming from this industry in that we look at the science in a very rigorous way. Uh, we are doing clinical testing in, in a rigorous fashion. But we're thinking about ideas that would really be outside the box. And, and um, you know, for example, uh, we have this company, Achille, uh, which we founded, which is developing what, what we're considering uh, the first types of electronic medicines. And the idea being that you can um, actually both measure and modulate um, cog- cognitive disorders like ADHD, autism, and maybe even you know Alzheimer's um, remotely through an iPad-like um, you know, iPad um, video game. I mean, the field is kind of wide open at this point, but what are some of the areas that you're excited about? Yeah, I think it's it's really just the convergence of so many different technologies and also so many different companies that are interested in healthcare now. So, you know, think about 10 years ago or even five years ago, having, you know, it w- you would be surprised if I told you that, you know, Google and Apple and Samsung and, um, you know, General Mills and, I mean, all, Nestle, all of these companies that you would never have thought of being in the healthcare industry, they're actually going to be in major drivers in the healthcare industry. Yeah, it's it's, it's exciting, and then um, all these technologies. So there's sensors that are going to be measuring uh, everything that we're doing, um, and there's going to be the ability to um, deliver drugs um, in some cases to modulate um, microbes that are in your body to to have them affect certain outcomes. So the idea being that there's almost a pharmacy inside you that can get triggered externally. Um, there's there's going to be all different ways that you measure your body. Um, right now, people are beginning to see, oh, you know, there's these wearable fit trackers. The and, fit right. trackers, but, you know, what if you could measure your microbiome uh, profile through a smart toilet? What if you could, um, you know, have constant monitoring of your cognitive state? Um, many different factors from, you know, blood pressure uh, to heart rate are beginning to be measured, but there's, there's many more that that people are developing sensors. So all of that, the concept of everybody being immersed in um, sensors and then the ability to then actually change and think about um, modulating. Uh, so Behavior or... Behavior, you know, physiology, and, and outcomes. Um, so at, that begins to get really At exciting. earlier points. Exactly. So let's talk about this. I mean, I, okay. personally, I think this is all a good idea, right? The more information, the better. But... Um, a lot of this sounds like it is giving information back or power back to uh, the, the patient, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not sure the history has shown that patients are particularly good at that at using that information. What are your thoughts on that, I guess? Yeah, I think that it's, um, it's not going to be possible to take all that information and have patients make decisions uh, entirely about their own health care. I think that some decisions that are... Um, you know, very repetitive, and um, you know, you could talk to doctors about you know about examples of such decisions. But some some decisions might get moved into the realm of um, a combination of software and mm-hmm. patient. Uh, with and then others might get moved into a realm of oversight from a physician's office that could be remote. So there's it's almost like the physician becomes almost the central control or central command that gets all this information, and there's really smart uh, decision support tools that help that physician 
in, in making those decisions. So they're not going to go and read all the data, but they're going to have all kinds of alerts that come up and and uh, ways to be tracking their patients better. Or the patients may bring in their smartphone and for their checkup and say, look, and the doctor downloads it and says, okay, here's what your heart has done over the past six months, et cetera. Exactly. And yeah. a lot of that is going to be sort of seamlessly integrated uh, with the existing um, health records. So, yeah. Huh. Um, what, what things does biotech do well at this point, and, and what areas is it still lacking? Well, that's, that's a great question. It's really relevant, especially as we talk about sort of the next evolution of healthcare. So um, the, the biotech industry is, is um, amazing at being, you know, looking at data at, at the, the, um, the. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The level of sophistication um, of um, the science, the clinical studies, uh, you know, FDA and regulatory um, what is really lacking uh, on the part of the, the, the industry is the connection to the consumer and thinking about user experience. Uh, and, and what's interesting is you, you kind of hear about uh, tech companies that are interested or tech VCs that are interested in healthcare, digital health, mm-hmm. and they actually come at it, and I can talk about what they're lacking. And so they, they come at it, uh, you know, with a lot of experience in in thinking about the user and the patient and, you know, and if you think about a patient at the center, um, getting people to start using a new product, a lot of that they bring to the table. But what they are very um, uncomfortable with is the FDA, the regulatory. And so it, they almost tend to um, be drawn to more consumer types, um, health, you know, pure health types of approaches unless when it starts looking like medicine they're, you know, less, um, you know, comfortable, I think, jumping in, whereas the, um, the, the life sciences side, you know, people are very comfortable with the science, but then when you start talking about consumer and user experience, they don't. So it's, it's interesting. I think there's going to be a whole new group of players that emerge that feel comfortable in both those places. And so, but you're saying the biotech does not, um, what it doesn't do well is think about its end user? Yeah. I mean, think about Apple. You know, every, every every customer who uses Apple is very connected to the company, has a direct connectivity with it. And if you could look, you can name, you know, 10 other tech companies that we all feel really connected to as, yeah. as users. Very loyal. Exactly. Very loyal, loyal, yeah. loyal um, connected, uh, and, and we're getting service directly from them. And then if you think about pharma companies, how many of us have that kind of relationship with our pharma companies, even patients that are on chronic drug? Uh, are they... Um, are they connected to the pharma company? Do you even know which pharma company? Yeah. And I think a lot of pharma companies actually have been really concerned about patient engagement. How do you engage patients more? You know, we've talked about this before, um, but that pharma has a really bad uh, bad reputation among most of most of people. I mean, they, they're like oil companies, tobacco, and big pharma. They're all sort of lumped right. together there. And um, biotech will f- fall into that category shortly if they're not already there. Um, so how do you think that can be overcome? I, I think some of the things we're seeing is with pricing, number one. I mean, that's getting out in the mainstream media. And well, I think that, that um, 
it's it's a combination of you know self awareness and you know can we charge this much because there's a need yes um, do we need to charge that much um, in you know in order to make a profit or in order to justify the drug discovery and development work mm-hmm. fine if that's the case great but if if not um, then I think it is important to think about you know how is this perceived and you know if somebody's taking care of their parents and has to you know they start seeing that this uh, these really major outflows of cash going for copays and you know th- that's going to result in some negativity I, but you know overall would people rather pay more and or not have these innovative drugs available to them you know i think if you ask most people they would rather have the opportunity and you know and pay more so is that something that when you're thinking about companies you know when you have an idea and you're starting to form that company do you you must look at price already? That must be one of the first things. Yeah, I think that that um, what we look at is more just feasibility. So we say, um, you know, first of all, is there a market? Is there an unmet need? Uh, and then, w- in terms of pricing, it's just is this something that's feasible? Do we think we could get it developed and sort of um, with within a cost that makes sense? Um, we don't typically look at ideas or um, that are really niche. Uh, just just our own approach, um, and so therefore. Uh, if you f- could solve, you know, these some of these problems, then, you know, there's a market and people, you know, there's an em- there's enough people that you don't have to, um, you know, charge crazy amounts mm. for it. Not to put you on the spot, but mm-hmm. are there certain uh, indications that you feel like um, are maybe set for a breakthrough? Oh yeah, absolutely. You mean in terms of um, therapeutic indications? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think definitely everything to do with neuroscience is um, we're you know, really excited about neuroscience because um, there's so much more um, that we have to learn. And what we're particularly excited about is the the ability to to have in, more information about function, brain function, and then all of these different ways to modulate brain function that aren't just chemical. Um, and if you think about it, for example, like electrical mm-hmm. um, and other non-invasive approaches that relate to behavior um, that can be optimized and then measured uh, in a way that just like you would measure a drug, uh, but you might have more, you know, you might have uh, just as much efficacy, but you'd, you'd have something that's very safe and, and easy to um, bring to, to market. So we're, we're saying things like, you mean like ALS, Alzheimer's? Um, ALS is so complex that I, I won't even um, mention that. But I, you know, I hope, really hope that, especially with the increased awareness um, and no, you know, knowledge that we'll have over the coming years, that there might be an opportunity to, to make some headway in ALS. Um, Alzheimer's disease uh, is an area that, that I think is very interesting, and where some of the information that we have, um, and especially with regards to neuroplasticity mm-hmm. um, and uh, the ability to, you know, maybe it might affect the ability to delay onset of symptoms and maybe even um, uh, maybe even go further than that. But but I'm really thinking about other types of cognitive disorders. And I mean, if you think about it, everything that we do relates to our brain. Sure. You know, so if you can unlock. Uh, some of the knowledge around what's going on there and actually be able to, to tackle it in a different way. That's really interesting. Um, some of these other approaches I mentioned, like um, you know, non-invasive neurostimulation, um, electrical mm-hmm. you know, methods, and so on. I mean, they're interesting because there's data in humans. And a lot of times when you think about drug dis- discovery in the neurosciences, you know, you do all these animal models, and you do, there's a lot of work um, that goes on in drug discovery, uh, preclinical development, that ends up not translating well to humans, or you know, is just not as relevant. So, if you can actually begin to test um, some of these approaches in humans earlier and get results, that's that just puts you forward um, so so much uh, so far ahead of uh, where we were before. Other areas that you think are um I don't want to say hot. Yes, yeah, so we're really interested in, in nutrition, and um, the reason it's—I mean—it's obviously important because you can impact health on a global level if you can influence uh, nutrition. And we're learning a lot more about how food actually affects health um, directly outside of the obvious things. And we think that there there's just lots of really interesting ideas that could be applied, but in a much more rigorous fact 
uh, fashion than how um, food companies have done that. So mm-hmm. that you know, you've got functional foods and food companies making claims sometimes ahead of uh, real data. But uh, we think that there's really beginning to be a body of interesting science that um, where where you could bring you know materials that previously had been food grade materials and actually have uh, a therapeutic effect. And I can give you a couple examples of that. If no, that, please do. Yeah. yeah. So, so one example um, is a company that we formed called Jealousis, which we we founded together with leading obesity experts, and there um, some really amazing polymer scientists were able to take two food ingredients that are used on the metric ton scale in, in the food industry, and um, and actually cross-link them together in a um, in a new uh, superabsorbent hydrogel, and what that does is it's it's delivered via a capsule, and there's many little um, particles that expand in your stomach to um, make you feel full. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of different things engineered into this um, into this hydrogel that um, that we think are, have potential uh, real benefit in uh, for pre-diabetics and uh, potentially even um, you know diabetics. And um, and so that's one example. It's not really nutrition because we're now going down FDA path. Right, right. Uh, and it would be, you know, marketed like a drug um, once it was approved. Almost like a like um, obesity drug. Yeah. So yeah. the idea is it's almost like a, a it's a capsulated device that um, acts mechanically. Damps down your hunger. Yeah, and, yeah. and but it's it's built from the building blocks are actually come from from, from food. food. Right. right. Um, another example of something that um, you know is is not specifically. Uh, the application isn't in the nutrition area, but another area that we think is very exciting and important is the whole area of the human microbiome. We have a company there called Vedanta, which is um, d- developing a, um, a therapy um, for um, autoimmune conditions, um, IBD, and um, and even potentially for infectious disease. We have some early data there um, that uh, is really exciting, and um, the idea is really that these microbes are in your body, so it's 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 something that exists within you, mm-hmm. and it's not a new um, new chemical entity that's coming from the external world. So that again, it, it's not really directly related to nutrition, but the idea is that that um, these microbes are actually having a conversation with your immune system, and if you, and what you eat affects these microbes, and so there's there's a lot of things that can come out of that as well. In that case, we're developing a biologic type of a drug, but there's a lot of insights from that work. Um, and and of course, um, there's there's many other ideas like that that we're looking at. For for VCs mm-hmm. or for people who are creating biotechs, you are younger than most, mm-hmm. and you're a female. Mm-hmm. Does that um, affect you on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. Do you feel um, any different? I guess. Well, I think that that um, you know, it was funny. We uh, there was a conversation on Twitter um, just. Recently, I think it was Scott Kersner who started it off, and uh, what he was he was noting is the lack of women in, in venture capital, which is a topic that's come up quite a lot. And I was I thought it was sort of interesting that uh, if you look at most women in venture capital, um, they're either um, there's there's very few who are in sort of traditional um, venture firms. Uh, there's you know, there's a, there's a few, um, and there's a, there's more in strategic. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole group of, no, not a huge group, but there's a group of women who sort of form their own thing or they're coming at it from the venture creation aspect of it. And I actually think that's interesting. I don't know what it is um, about, I guess, maybe, you know, if you're starting your own firm, you, you know, you just start it and, and uh, um, you don't have to be part of a um, existing network in order right. to do that. I mean, you just kind of build your own network. But I haven't really felt... Any um, like um, any overt um, issues with being a woman? Um, I think that it's really you're judged by what you can do, and in some cases, it can be an advantage because if there aren't many uh, people, um, you, people can remember. Sure. You know, they might remember me. They might remember PureTech, and that might help. Um, but I, I, I do find it very frustrating that. Um, when we go out and search, so if you look at our team, we don't have as many women on the team that, as I'd like. And what I find frustrating is when we go out and search, um, we actually, you know, we look at all candidates equally. So why aren't there more women 
you know, applying? Why aren't there more women, you know, sort of in, engaged at the level, you know, I could say like sort of senior associate level, principal level. We just don't see as many coming. I don't know why. So they're either not applying or there aren't, there aren't qualified people out there for whatever I reason. I think that, that something happens, you know, sometime between um, early educa- you know, education, early education, education, and then uh, going into the workflow, um, and it, it causes women to be, you know, to move towards other disciplines and industries, and they move away from, you know, STEM generally. They move away, definitely away from venture capital. Huh. And, you know, I think life sciences, um, there's not that many women in, in the venture worlds. You see more as you get into pharma and biotech. But if you look at the tech world, it's even more pronounced. So It is. Yeah, huh. definitely. I would have thought it was the other way around. Yeah, I would have too. But it's it's really, um, you know, there's really a lack of women in, in technology as well. So I don't know. Um, also, because you were born in Israel, but uh, we have a we have a blog. Uh, we just had a woman posting that, you know, when people want to talk about exotic biotech, they, they tell you Brazil and China. Mm-hmm. But there is biotech in Estonia. Um, oh, yeah. in, in Chile. So the question is, and this is something she posed, like how do you form, you know, clusters there? How do you make biotech prosper in these areas which are outside of, you know, which are not the most prosperous countries in the world? Yeah, well, well maybe Israel's not a great example of this because, yeah, yeah the, 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 but but um, there there is an issue with in, in Israel where there's a tremendous amount of innovation and there's really amazing science um, and the translation um, you know, as you think about, you know, you, you don't see that many major biotech companies in Israel. And what I've what I've seen and heard is that, you know, what's missing is really the, um, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. What's missing maybe is more the executive um, leadership to take yeah. things from a seed or venture-backed state to, you know, kind of grow it to a major company. Um I, I think that that in order to create these cl- clusters, um, people just have to be as collaborative as possible. And um, a lot of times, incentive structures that are built in places, you know, where they're trying to create incentives for you to come there, mm-hmm. they're very much focused on let's bring people here to our, you know, city or town, and you know, we'll make funding available, but you have to come and be located here. And you know, those incentive structures should be flexible enough to realize, you know, isn't it great if you can get, you know, your the, the scientists and entrepreneurs to collaborate with other companies, not make them all move to, you know, Estonia or wherever it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the startup mentality is actually there. And, and the students, you know, these young students are well aware of what starting a biotech is and they want to do it. But the infrastructure around it isn't there. Not only is there not really a VC culture, but there aren't managers, there aren't um, CROs necessarily. And that's what's lacking. Can you actually force a biotech cluster? Um, I think it, you can maybe seed a biotech cluster and you know ha- encourage it to take hold over time. But it, I don't know if you can do it immediately. And there might be some cool ways to do it. I know New York, for example, um, and not just biotech, but you know New York is a place that um, is you know really doing a lot to um, promote entrepreneurship, so that you see a lot more activity uh, in New York. You know, Boston obviously is um, is one of the top places. But um, I wonder, you know, why do all the pharma companies decide that they're going to set up um, in Boston and close down somewhere else? You know, what mm-hmm. is it about Boston? And I think part of it really has to do with this um, proximity to, to innovation and, you know, the academic innovation that exists. So that might be one necessary ingredient. And know. also the... Um the employee pool that's there. I mean, they have a wide range of biotech people to choose from for for hiring as well. Exactly. So it's like a virtuous cycle. By the way, UK is really interesting. I think that, you know, in terms of a a biotech cluster, it's just really, um, they've they've developed some really interesting ways of developing technology out of uh, research institutions and some really interesting companies there, um, like Imperial Innovations Uh and IP Group. And, um, you, you know, there's a few really interesting Companies and really um, amazing backers uh, that help to I think build this that that ecosystem. And so it's, you're saying that's sort of on the upswing. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like oh, it good. is. Yeah. I'm assuming you're going to continue in this line of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have goals that you've set for yourself? I mean, maybe not hard goals, but things that you want to achieve. Absolutely. I think that for for us, the um, 
measure of achievement has always been, you know, are we going to have an impact on patients and what kind of impact will we have on patients? So uh, for me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about the um, the portfolio that we have and how it's matured. And now, um, you know, there's a number of different companies that, you know, were ideas in the room, you know, like we talked about before that are now, you know, in position to, to really have a major impact. So to me, that's really exciting. And then the other thing that's really exciting is all the different changes that we talked about in the converging disciplines. We're very excited about having um, new board members like Joey Ito, who's the head of the MIT Media Lab, and he was one of the first investors in Twitter and Flickr and uh-huh. Kickstarter. Um, and he brings this, you know, a lot of uh, insight into the convergence area and yeah, the, the tech, tech and side, yeah. user experience, the things that we talked about. Uh, we have two other new board members joining us, uh, Bob Horvitz, who's at MIT mm-hmm. um, and who is a Nobel laureate and has been working with us um, for a number of years on Enlight. And then uh, Raju Kutrilapati, who uh, was the first director of the Harvard Center for Genetics and Genomics and actually was a co-founder of Millennium and AppGenics. Um, it's just really exciting to see all these different areas that um, one wouldn't have thought that they were related, uh, but they're actually all going to be influencing each other. And, um, and the ability to uh, integrate um, technology with living tissue the ability to, you know, sense, you know, everybody's talking about the Internet of Things, um, how that converges with the, um, you know, various demographic trends, you know, the aging population, people wanting to live at home longer, mm-hmm. um, you know, people like myself who uh, are going to be uh, taking care of their parents over the next 10 to 20 years and then also taking care of their kids, sort of what the, I think they call the sandwich generation. So, you know, all of those um, demographic trends uh, and the technology. So I find that very exciting. And I hope that, you know, in the next few years, we're going to be able to have a major impact in some of those areas. And then, um, so you mentioned that you have kids. Yes. Yeah. How old are they? Uh, two and five. Oh, so one's oh. quite quite young. Yes. You have your hands full. Yes. <laughs> how are you, um, how do you handle that? Uh, well, we have um, you know, very good um you know, nanny and very um, and good. You know, they're, they're in, you know my my five year old starting school yeah. school tomorrow, yeah. kindergarten. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so they have. Um, it's a big you deal. Know, we have a good education system in in Brookline where I live. Um, so, you know, just do do what you can, and yeah. obviously, I wish I could spend more time with them. Yeah, right. But we only work because you know they pay us. Otherwise, you'd be home with your family. <laughs> uh, but so beyond you were born in Israel, but you you basically grew up in in the Boston area. Yeah, I grew up in the Boston area, but I'd say it spent um, probably about 10, 12 years in Israel. Oh, a long time. Yeah. Oh. So I've spent a lot of my life. In it. So you're very familiar with it? Yes, yeah. very, very familiar. And I was just there a few weeks ago. Um, there was you know, a ceasefire right when we got there, and it lasted right through the day that we left. Um, so I was going to ask, was that uh, – I mean, it was safe? It was – it was. It just happened to be safe. I mean, it, it, it could have you know, my, my um, cousins and nieces um, were there in Tel Aviv and going down to the bomb shelters, you know, every uh, every few hours. But um, we just happened to be lucky when we got there. Were you there for, for business or for pleasure? Uh, just to visit family. I mean, it's, um, is it, it was it terrifying? I mean, is, your, is your family terrified? No, I think people are really, you know, in Israel, they're used to it. I mean, I when I lived there, I remember there was a lot of, um, there was, you know, um, these sort of, uh, cafe bombings that would happen, yeah. you know, so you, you, people from the outside would say, you know, scared to, to go visit Israel, but uh, people there just kind of feel like that's, it's not as dangerous, it's probably more dangerous to get in a car and drive there than it is, than, you know, the chances that you're going to get blown hit by, yeah, blown up in a cafe, or in this case, hit by a, a bomb, and they had the whole Iron Dome system, which was very, uh, right, very, yeah. Yeah, worked really well. So. so, so then, just every few hours, there's an alarm goes off, and pe- people go down in the bomb shelter, and then it's all clear, and they come back out. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, anything else I want to ask you? We talked about your goals. Oh, but just the it, the general growing up in Boston. I mean, yeah. that probably had something to do with um, your interest in life science because it's so so present there. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that the ability to just when you meet scientists who are doing interesting things, you get interested in in that. And you can never tell what the future holds, but do you think that you're going to be a pure tech until you, you know, retire someday? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that if pure tech continues to evolve, I mean, one of the things being an entrepreneur is you get bored if you're doing the same thing over yeah, and over again, yeah. and it's it's impossible to be bored when you're you know involved in all this really exciting academic innovation, and we're constantly starting new companies, we're seeing them grow, so it's really um, I think the perfect place for for somebody like me who's you know, <laughs> entrepreneurial. So you'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, I want to thanks thank you for making the time and coming in. Thank you. This uh, has been really fun. There, Daphne Zohar on the First Rounders podcast. We had to work for a while to get our schedules to align, and I'm glad that finally that finally happened. Um, definitely enjoyed the conversation. So thanks to Daphne for uh, making the time and coming in. As usual, thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. Thanks to you for listening. You can find our podcasts on Nature Biotechnology's podcast page. You can find these podcasts in Stitcher. You can find them in iTunes by searching for Nature Biotechnology. And you can subscribe to the podcast in all of those places. So if you're interested, please do. This is the last one for 2014. The next podcast will be out next year. So think about that. 2015, where the year go. Okay, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.